Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Kia ora and welcome to Our Changing World from Ready New Zealand National. It's time to sit back and fire up the barbecue with Tim Curran from Lincoln University and Sarah Wise from the University of Auckland. So this is our plant barbecue or the, the flammability device that we affectionately call our plant barbecue. It's an Argentinian design and it's aimed at measuring the flammability of shoots. Now the guy who, dis- who built this for me here in New Zealand, once he actually rigged it up, said... Uh, I can actually see what you're getting at now that you explained it was from Argentina because it actually looks like a barbecue that they grill meat on in, in Argentina, apparently. So what we've got here is a 44-gallon drum cut in half. Uh, one half of it is sort of rigged up as a screen um, to sort of protect from a bit of wind. And on the other half, which is the sort of bottom half, we've got some legs attached to it, a gas apparatus set up, which um, feeds both a grill, a standard sort of barbecue grill, but also a blowtorch. We've got the, the grill on, um, and so that's there to preheat the sample, to sort of start to drive some of the moisture out of the, of the sample after we put it on. And then after two minutes of the sample being on there, we ignite the blowtorch. And so that blowtorch goes on for 10 seconds and then we measure a range of different attributes of the sample and how it burns. Uh, so we measure how long it burns for, so we've got a stopwatch to time that. We also have this wonderful bit of um, kit, a laser infrared thermometer, which um, Sarah sort of paints the sample with to measure the maximum temperature reached of the sample. And we also estimate um, visually the proportion of biomass that the sam- that, of the sample that's burnt at the end. And we pretty much do that for 50-odd samples per day. Yeah. So we've got a few samples today that will be burning well, the, the carnica down there, but um, what we're going to do next is going to be pretty boring because that's a couple of Coprosper robustas. So a native species? Native species, very common. So this is one of our control burns. So we've got two, two plants of the same species just seeing how that burns, and then we're comparing that to mixes of species to see how those um, mixtures work. So what are your sample sizes? You've got a couple uh, of sticks of caprosma there? Yeah, so these are the 70 centimetre long twigs. So we're sort of trying to get a ranking of flammability of different species, and so we're consistently sampling the same length of shoot. Of course, one of the things, the attributes that will change is the amount of material on those shoots, and that, of course, leads to inherent differences in flammability between species. We are measuring all of that with our yep. handy-dandy measuring tape. Um, and we, so we've, we've weighed these already, so then we'll pop them in the, on the barbecue. I know the, their dimensions as a sort of single sample, but then once you pop them on the barbecue, we'll measure them as a sort of a combined sample so we can work out the, the volume of the, the biomass that's going to be burnt. They were cut a few days ago, they're a little wilted. That, that's kind of yeah. part of the process? We start, we take the sample, stick it in a black plastic rubbish bag, tie it all up, and then pop that in the, in the fridge so it's, it shouldn't be losing water while it's being stored. Then leave them out to air dry for 24 hours before we burn. 
So the, the highly flammable species are still highly flammable. It's the species down the other end that we can sort of better differentiate and, and rank um, according to their flammability because they're not, you know, full of moisture that they might have been at collection. So putting the branches on the yeah, barbecue. Branches <laughs> on the barbecue. So this is your preheating bit. Our preheating for two yeah. minutes, yep. And then we'll have our, our dramatic countdown to ignition. 75, 75, 36, by 36, by 9, by 9 centimetres. And so what we're measuring there is the bulk density of the sample on the barbecue. And bulk density is one of the characteristics of a sample that's going to determine how well it burns because it's simply the amount of fuel in a given volume. Got your thermal thermometer there? Yes, we'll fire that into the base of the flames and that should record the, the maximum temperature. 5, 4... Three, two, one, go. So that's burning kind of as we'd expect with Caprosma. It's ignited, which we don't always get with the low flammability species like Caprosma, but we occasionally do. Sarah's waiting until we get the end of flame ignition and so the flame's just gone out there. Um, she's going to record the maximum temperature reach. What, what did yeah, that get to? 514 degrees. Okay, which is actually quite a high figure for caprosmas. It um, is, yes, and it burnt for 16 seconds, which again is reasonably good for caprosmas. We get up to, we get over a minute for some of the more flammable species, but yes, yeah, some of them go out after just a couple of seconds if they're particularly low flammability. And the ignition time there, Sarah, was six seconds. Okay, so the next thing we need to do now is have a look at our two samples and visually estimate um, how much of the samples are burnt. Now, there's more precise ways of doing this in uh, using other sort of uh, flammability measurement techniques. But to be honest, our plant barbecue, this, this approach is an approach that's less about um, precise flammability measurements, more about gleaning rankings between different species but being able to do so for a wide range of species and measure a number of samples um, quite rapidly. So the first question we ask ourselves is, is there more or less than a half of the sample that's burnt? And quite clearly in this case, it's less than a half of the sample is burnt. Next question is, again, to halve that, is it more or less than a quarter? And it's slightly less, what do you reckon? Yeah, I think that might be about 20%. And the other samples burnt 25%. So what else have you already burnt today? So we burnt a couple of pine samples uh, before you got here. So this is Pinus radiata, and a lot of pines do burn very well. Um, we've been a bit surprised in testing this one. It hasn't burnt as well as what we'd expect. And I think in part that's because it doesn't retain as much dead material as some other pines do, and certainly a lot of the samples that we've been collecting haven't had dead material, and so we're sort of getting an unexpected result on what we would otherwise think would be quite a flammable species. Not to say that I'm advocating people go and burn pines. Uh, they could well go up if the conditions are right. But... Particularly with the, that large build-up of dead leaf litter beneath them and pine cones, everyone yeah. knows that they're great kindling for your, um, starting your barbecue or whatever. That's a really good point, actually. We are testing the canopy flammability, and the flammability of the whole ecosystem is determined not just by the flammability of the, the canopy uh, material, but also uh, the leaf litter and, and other fuel, mm. um, so twigs and other branches that might have been dropped from the... And various microclimate variables as well. So yeah, different so forest types will have different 
uh, levels of moisture and um, things There's like that. There's a whole range of uh, different things that drive ecosystem flammability and, and we're just measuring one, one small component of that. That thing of, of whether it's the canopy burning or the stuff on the ground, when I hear stories, say from the United States, about the big wildfires yep. they're having there, they talk about if there hasn't been a fire for a while, how there's a big fire load sitting there ready to go, all those dead branches and leaves and stuff. One of the things that drives those big fires that you get in uh, the western United States and also in Australia is um, the stream fire weather conditions. Um, so you've got very, very hot temperatures. you often got dr very dry conditions leading into that, sometimes drought conditions and, and drought for several years perhaps. There might not have been a fire through there for quite a while, so there's been a build-up of fuel. You get all of those things combined and you get some really, really dangerous fire weather. And so you'll get what's known as a crown fire, which is a fire that runs through the canopy or the crown of, of the trees. And they're obviously, you know, the, the most dangerous ones and they're the ones that, you know, are also most destructive. America used to have the campaign, I think it was Smokey the Bear or, or something, that, you know, don't set fires and we, we try and prevent things from burning. And that's actually making the situation a lot worse because the longer that you go between fires in those areas, the more flammable the forest becomes and more dematerial builds up. Whereas in New Zealand, we tend to have a slightly different model. So in those forests, with uh, increasing time since a fire, flammability goes up. Whereas in New Zealand, in early successional forests, the Manuka, Karnaka, tea tree kind of stage, it's quite flammable. And then once you move through the stage of succession and get into a more mature forest, the species are inherently but less flammable, microclimate's changing, and so you get a reduction in, in flammability. So it's a bit of a, a hump-shaped model. And we've been largely able to support that with our measurements of shoot flammability. So many of the species that we've tested in the past, a lot of those most flammable species are early successional species, so pioneer species that come in soon after a disturbance. So Manuka Kanaka you've Manu mentioned? Yeah, Manuka Kanaka, um, a lot of the invasives like gorse and hakea from Australia. Dracophyllum, which is turpentine bush, or well, kerosene bush is yeah. the other one. So we've burnt, we've burnt turpentine bush on here, and it's quite spectacular. We've also got over there, what we're going to burn later, is Pomodorus kumraho, yeah. uh, which is a gumlin species. And that is actually surprised us the first time we, we burnt it. It actually goes up quite well. And it's in those sort of gumlin areas where you've got these manuka stands, the kumraho, and you've got the invasive hakia and uh, gorse coming in. We haven't done these sort of tests in the field, but yeah, our, our data is nice to predict that these are quite flammable. Okay, well my hands are getting cold. I think oh, it's sure. about time we burnt something else Absolutely. from the barbecue. Let's get a spectacular <laughs> one on. So what do you got there? So Scottish broom, the, the invasive species, so I collected this off in the Port Hills, uh, and we've got carnica. So one of the things that we've found so far with broom is it's one of the less flammable invasives that we've been burning, probably because, again, it doesn't retain much dead material. So it's mostly the green shoots, which of course have got high moisture content and, and that's probably what's driving the, the low flammability. Whereas the Karnuka is quite a different looking plant. The Karnuka is very much a different looking. You can see from this one here, it's very, it's very spreading. Um, it's got multiple layers, like the broom when it sits on the barbecue sort of tends to sit quite flat, whereas the Karnuka sort of very much fills the three-dimensional space. The fuel's nicely spaced throughout it too, so that's that's a key thing that we're finding with the more flammable species is that the the fuel has to be spaced enough so oxygen can get in and so it can actually ignite. And that's part of the reason we suspect why the, the pines aren't burning so well. So they hold their needles very quite close together and so they almost have a smothering effect on the flame. That's like the girl guide principle of making 
fires where you you know you have to leave lots of space for the oxygen. Absolutely, and that's and that's what the bulk density measurement um, partly measures as well too. It's sort of showing how much material you've got in a given volume of um, space. The other thing we've found too is that you can't be too spaced together, otherwise you're going to put the flame out. But you also can't be too spaced apart because the flame won't sort of carry between the different material or the, the different leaves. And it's mostly leaves, sometimes the smaller twigs that are, that are burning on these samples. We rarely get the larger twigs burning because the, the plants just simply don't get hot enough. But that one does have quite a number of small dead twigs. Yes, yes. yes. So it's a particular population of, of Kanuka. So this is, Kanuka has recently been split into, I think it's about a dozen species. It used to be just one species and was when we started burning yeah. uh, the burning the, the experiment. This is the white uh, one, which is Kunzia robusta. It's a, a common one there. It's and a different species to the one that you'll find growing around Lincoln grounds. Yeah, and so most of the ones that we've burnt previously have been uh, the species down here around Canterbury, and we're finding that there's quite considerable differences in the flammability yes, of these the two different species. The white ones to be a lot more flammable than the um, southern one. Anyway, let's put these samples on and show you what... How this so we lay them side by side. Our previous stuff was looking at how do the e these species burn on their own, which ranking which are the more and less flammable species. Now we're trying to work out well if you've oh, got it's a mixed grill today. It's a mixed, yes. it's a mixed grill, yes. Absolutely. So yep. if you've got like these invasive species coming into your ecosystem, what happens when you've got taking a very flammable plant and now it's now invading a, a native system? You've got it growing with it, maybe a less flammable species. What what happens overall? So does it? Uh, is the flammability driven by the, the more flammable one? Do they sort of have an additive effect? So you take a really flammable one and a less flammable one, you get something in the middle. Um, so what, what sort of happens there? So we're trying burning these uh, flammable invasive species mixed with uh, common early successional native species. So that's 75. 75. By 58. By 58. By 28. By 28. So you can immediately see how the way the fuel's held on the on that Kanuka is different to the previous sample. It's almost three times the height. Now this one is likely to go up quite quickly. Five, four, three, two, one, go. Two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. So we can see that burning quite well. It's, um, mainly burning the Kanuka, you can actually start to hear it really crackling and the, and the flames are sort of oh, probably you know, almost 2 feet 60, 70 centimetres above, above the grill. Throwing out quite a lot of heat. It is throwing out quite a lot right, of heat. 745 degrees. Quite a bit hotter than last time. Most of the Kanuka that's, that's burning, the, the broom has long since given up. Still just a little bit hanging on there now and we're, oh no, it's come back on again. A little fire that thought it could. That's only about 100 degrees now, that little flame. So we measure the maximum temperature reached. Um, it's sort of one of the various different measures that we can use to measure the overall combustibility of the, of the sample. There's four different um, components to flammability. There's ignitability, so how easily the, the plant ignites. Um, in this case it was one, so it ignited straight away. Um, part of that might well be due to the volatile oils that the likes of Kanuka and Manuka and the Eucalypts and others in the Mertesi family have. Um, so you've got ignitability, you've got combustibility, which is sort of how intense the fire burns, and that's what we're using the maximum temperature to, to measure. 
Consumerability is, um, you know, how much of the sample burns, so how extensive is the shoot flammability in this case. And then the final one is sustainability, so how long does the sample burn? And that was 59 seconds in this case? Yeah, so that's so quite a lot a l- longer than the previous yeah. sample we just burned. What we have found, though, is that all these variables that we're measuring are highly correlated, so maximum temperature tends to be quite correlated with both the amount of time the sample burns and also the amount of the sample that burns. So we're, we're pretty confident that we're getting a really robust measure of, of overall flammability. You've got that barbecue sitting with a, a low heat in the background yep. and you're putting the sample on that for a couple of minutes before you apply the flame. Yep. So what's the point of doing that? Why are you doing this preheating? So if you see that hedge over there, if we've got a fire down one end of the hedge, as it moves along the hedge, it's going to encounter plants that are not just getting hit by fire straight away. But there's going to be some measure of preheating before that. And so while obviously our barbecue can't recreate the, you know, the circumstances of a, of a fire in the field, we are at least sort of preheating the sample. So we're driving a little bit of extra moisture out where we're sort of allowing, particularly with um, things like Kanuka and Maranaka, some of the volatile oils to volatilise. And as you saw with the, the very quick ignition of that sample, um, a large part of that's probably the volatile oils that are just sort of sitting there or have, have evaporated and just sort of sitting above the sample and, and that provides it with that boof of, of flammability. Certainly that's, what the, that's the case with the eucalypts that we've burnt. Yeah, let's do a hakia. So hakia is an Australian plant? Yes, it is, like me, another (laughs) invasive Aussie. It's quite a problem weed up in northern parts of the country. And you're partnering it today with a little number that is? Um, Melisitis ramiflorus. It's whitey wood or mahoe. Um, So quite a common um, shrub around many parts of the New Zealand bush. And in the past, we found it to be quite low flammability. So one of the key things that we're hoping to do with this research is identify which species, particularly native species, might be useful to plant as what are known as green firebreaks. And so green firebreaks are strips of vegetation that have got species of low flammability which can uh, reduce the spread of fire. There's been a little bit of research done on this in New Zealand. Fifteen or so years ago, Liam Fogarty, who was what is now Scion, um, conducted a, a survey, a qualitative survey of fire managers Um, throughout New Zealand and he was asking them to rank the flammability of different native trees and shrubs and from that he derived a ranking and worked out which species were more or less likely to be flammable and that's been used subsequently by councils particularly up around Wellington to provide guidelines for land managers and land owners as to which species they might plant to help minimise fire spread in their landscapes. The key thing is, is and, and Liam sort of mentioned that in this report, was that his was a sort of a first step at this, so providing some early guidelines on what experts thought would be the flammability of these species, but he highly recommended that it be empirically tested. And that's what you're doing? And that's what we're doing. So we've essentially provided one of the very first empirical tests of that ranking scheme. We found quite good uh, correlation between the two. There are a few species that are doing unexpected things, um, Cowrie, flax and Dodonia, Akeake, were uh, less flammable than Fogarty's ranking um, put them, whereas we, we found Rimu, Silver Beach were a lot lot higher than, than we expected them to be. Silver Beach in particular just 
yeah, went nuts. Our most flammable species, which was completely uh, unexpected. That's not what people think about our beach forests. Trampers always complain you can't light fires with beach. That's exactly right, although it's interesting, uh, when we mentioned this to a uh, guy, Bill Lee, who's with Landcare down at um, Dunedin, he mentioned that, oh yeah, that's the that's the plant I always use in the in the forest to get a fire started. So, you know, there may be some evidence out there already that people are considering them a bit more flammable than what other people think. Uh, the really interesting thing with this, of course, is particularly with the silver beech and the rimu, is these are species that generally grow in wetter ecosystems. So a lot of the forests of the west coast, and and particularly with silver beech, it tends to grow in the wetter wetter parts of the country. And so what it means is is by and large, these species aren't going to ignite simply because the weather conditions are not there and not conducive for fire. What it does mean, however, is if we do get extensive droughts or we do get um, long periods of hotter temperatures, often combined with droughts in those areas, we do have some native species that are, that are potentially quite flammable. And while we hesitate to sort of scale up from our shoot flammability to the whole of the ecosystem because of... Um, you know things like microclimates and the general moisture of the of the community and the and the fire weather. It sort of suggests that there might might be something more complex going on there. Which has ramifications because under the climate change scenarios, New Zealand is meant to get warmer and have more and longer droughts. That, that's correct. The west coast, I believe, is actually going to get a little bit more rain. So some of these areas might might be all right. The key thing to remember, though, there is. A drought on the west coast is not the same as a drought in Canterbury. You know, you could get a drought um, with just a few weeks or a few months of no rain over on the west coast, and that could actually sort of mean that these ecosystems uh, become potentially more flammable. Uh, so, yeah, it, combined with the predictions for uh, dry, drier conditions and hotter conditions and windier conditions, we need to be, you know, starting to really think about where flammability might increase across different ecosystems in New Zealand. So this is Heikia versus Mahoe. Yep. Five, four, three, two, one, go. So this one's burning reasonably well. Hakea sort of can be a little bit hit and miss at times with the burns. Sometimes it burns really, really well, and other times like this it's a little bit of a fizzer as, as the technical term for it, I think. And again, not much of the, the overall sample has sort of burnt. And how hot did that get, Sarah? 404. So oh, nothing. <laughs> so <laughs> four, as as the, the four seconds was the ignition there, Sarah. So the mahoe just looks a little wilted, really. Yeah, and that tends to be the the case. You know, they've sort of it's curled up its leaves a bit where the where the blowtorch has touched it. It's it's been blackened a bit in some areas, but mahoe really doesn't doesn't carry a fire very well at all. And I can imagine it just sprouting straight back after that. It, they do actually. So that's that's another um, piece of research that myself and my students have been conducting. And and mahoe is an excellent re-sprouter after fire. Actually, it's it's quite a robust little plant. Well, you mentioned you've got some work in the lab, so should we pop yes, in there for yeah, a minute? Yeah, grab some gorse samples that, to show you as well while, while we're there, if you want. So gorse is your most flammable one? It is, of the ones that we tested um, in the earlier runs. Um, the, the interesting thing with gorse is it's, it's a bit more complex than that because different stages of gorse will burn different, uh, differently. So I had a student earlier in the piece looking at how 
the amount of dead material actually influence the flammability within gorse. And as you'd expect, flammability goes up with the greater proportion of dead material. But what she found was that it actually plateaus around about 65%. So in other words, it doesn't get any more flammable, even if you have a greater proportion than 65% flammability in gorse. And the interesting thing too is that really young green shoots of gorse, so generally have no dead material, they're quite low flammability. So that sort of had some implications in terms of if you're trying to manage fire in gorse ecosystems, you really want to be keeping the gorse from, from reaching older age. Although that complicates things in terms of ecological restoration because you, you do want the gorse to get older age and get eventually shaded out by the natives, but it, it sort of helps show the complexity of, of flammability responses even within a single species. Appreciating that you haven't finished the study, what would be your pick of the species you've looked at so far for a green firebreak? Prosa robusta, Malacitis, Aeroflorus. Yeah. Broadleaf, Grisolinia litoralis would be a great one, and I'm actually very heartened to see that as often used as a hedge in a lot of in a lot of plantings around the place. So, in a lot of cases, those are already being done. The great thing is is that our work has actually supported the guidelines that are already out there in some of those councils. So, by and large, they're suggesting things like Grisolinia, like Mahoe, like Caprosma robusta. There's one crucial caveat, though, I should mention, Alison, in terms of green fire breaks, and that is that there's no such thing as a fireproof plant. Under given circumstances, every plant's going to burn. All it takes is severe enough fire weather, so it just needs to be hot enough, dry enough, and any one of these plants, even the ones that we are finding to be quite low flammability on our device, uh, will go up. And so, you know, these green fire breaks, while they are potentially useful, tool to use to minimise the spread of fires, you know, if we start talking catastrophic fires like they have in Australia or the Western United States, then, then all bets are off in terms of some of these, these sort of principles. I don't tend to think of New Zealand as having a great fire history, but can you paint us a picture of what our fire history has been? Yeah, sure. It's, um, it's a really interesting one, actually. Um, generally, there wasn't much fire in the landscape before humans arrived. Um, and the, there's a couple of reasons for that. Probably the main one is that ignition sources were really low. So the main ignition sources pre-human were, of course, lightning strikes. And unlike Australia, for instance, um, when you get a lightning storm in New Zealand, it tends to be associated with a wet event, a rainfall event, um, whereas you get a lot of dry storms which cause fires and, and aren't immediately doused over in Australia. The other thing is, is that a lot of the lightning strikes that occur in New Zealand occurring on the west coast, um, which of course is our wettest part of the, of the, um, the country. And so what um, sort of ignition sources there were pre-human were generally not enough to sustain considerable fires. Of course, all that changed um, in the two sort of uh, waves of human settlement of, of New Zealand. Um, as we well know, uh, Maori use fire considerably across the landscape. Uh, our colleague George Perry has sort of done some modelling and sort of shown that some of the big extensive fires that occurred in those times may not have necessarily been deliberate attempts to clear the whole landscape, but just there was enough ignition sources with, uh, with humans sort of being sp or spreading through the country. Um, and of course, uh, European settlers, when they came here, deliberately used fire to clear the landscape. You know, there were extensive tracts of forest that were cleared for agriculture and for urban settlements by using fire. Um, to sort of to clear um, our forest. 
Before humans arrived, the, uh, the main sort of sources of fire were like volcanic eruptions. A few, That's true. Like, after the, the Taupo eruption, there were lots of little uh, fires going on. Um, Janet Wilmsess has done a lot of sort of work on that. And wet, wetlands, ironically, also burned. Um, Tree-clad wetlands, you know, that Raupo gets quite dry and that, that, that goes up in the, the Monica around the, the wetlands. Yes, yeah, so then as soon as you know, people arrived, all of that, that changed. We suddenly had those ignition sources um, that were very common. So there were sort of questions about why did New Zealand not burn? Was it because the plants don't burn or was it because they didn't have the opportunity to? And so yeah, what our work's been showing is that, well, they do burn as well as obviously flammable um, species from Australia. So it's yeah, supporting the idea that it was the lack of ignition sources that was the reason why we didn't, um, we didn't really burn before people started uh, running around lighting fires. And you can sort of see that too with the patterns of fire in more recent times in New Zealand. So Scion's done a lot of work looking at um, fires across New Zealand over the last 10, 20, 30 years. And there's, there's something like around about 3,000 fires per annum burning in New Zealand that burn around about um, 6,000 hectares each year. 99% of those fires are deliberately lit. Um, so they're, or in fact, greater than 99%. So it's either deliberate lighting of fires to, you know, for some sort of um, fuel management or other reason, or you know, arson. So you can sort of see that most of the fires that occur now in New Zealand are actually because of human emissions. And the planned barbecue chefs were Tim Curran from Lincoln University and Sarah Weiss from the University of Auckland. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this, you can find more stories on our webpage radioNz.co.nz forward slash our changing world. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details.